Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, all you movie fans. Thanks for tuning in. This is Nikki Starr. I'm in for Betty Jo today, but don't worry, she's here listening, and she's just as excited as I am about our show. Today, our topic is Spotlight on Filmmaker John Hughes, and our guest is film critic Jeff Roberts. He's been doing in-depth research about this prolific director, screenwriter, and producer. So let's bring him on right now. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for agreeing to talk about John Hughes today. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's always such a pleasure to have you with us. So I'm excited about this show because, of course, I love all of his movies, all of them. I really do. <laughs> but let's talk about what you feel uh, are his most significant work as a filmmaker and a writer. Well, The Breakfast Club, without a doubt, is his most significant work. It's a film about perception not always equaling reality. Now, at the start of the film, each character is identified as either ultra-popular, extremely bright, a criminal, a jock, or someone who is thought of as mentally unstable. Now, mm-hmm. They are forced through detention on a Saturday to write a 1,000-word essay by the principal of their school, telling him who do they think they are. During the course of the film, they come to learn who they really are and what they thought of those serving detention with them is not necessarily the reality. Now, the same goes double for the high school principal who projects his own thoughts of worthlessness and inability to achieve what he wanted in life onto them. While they grow as people during the film, they also have to grapple with whether or not to embrace one another on Monday or go back to their old ways of thinking. Well, hmm, what do you think they did? <laughs> yeah, uh, I I mean, <laughs> you would hope that they would uh, learn something from it and yeah. you know, move on, but kids mm-hmm. being kids, you never know. That's my that's how I dream about it though. I'm going to say that they did the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, what's your favorite Hughes film and why? National Lampoon's Vacation, without a doubt. We wouldn't even be sitting here if uh, John Hughes hadn't written a short story for National Lampoon magazine in 1979, which was the basis for the 1983 movie. Now, the Griswolds are instantly relatable, and you sympathize with their disastrous cross-country road trip on a pilgrimage to praise Marty Moose, the mascot for the fictional Wallywood theme park. They anticipated a ton of fun, only to discover it has been closed for two weeks. Randy Quaid is the boorish cousin Eddie, and Imogene Coca is Aunt Edna, and the tragedy that ultimately befalls her provides constant laughs. I know the script for this movie, Inside and Out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It, just talking about it makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So how did the films of Frank Capra and Laurel and Hardy influence John Hughes? 
Hughes would show young actors who worked with him uh, Laurel and Hardy films because he wanted them to pick up on the rapid-fire comedic timing and use what they learned from that in their own scenes in his film. He was huge on improvising within the perimeters that he had laid out for each of his characters. He especially liked working with Anthony Michael Hall in several films because he had the ability to go off on a tangent and keep uh, going and going madly in all directions for hours on end. Now, when it comes to Capra, Hughes gravitated to his films because, according to Susanna Gora, who wrote, You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, he loves films incorporating romance, physical comedy, and underdogs that triumph over adversity, which are all hallmarks, hallmarks rather, of uh, Capra's work and uh, that of Hughes himself. Well, that's one of the reasons that I loved all of his movies, too, at least those ones, yeah. So what led Hughes to write the short story that ended up, that you talked about earlier, that ended up launching his film career and was the basis for the National Lampoon Vacations? Well, Hughes never had a film career in mind when he wrote Vacation 58 in 1979, which was turned into the uh, 1983 film National Lampoon's Vacation. According to Susanna Gora, Hughes got his foot in the door with a major advertising agency after he wrote jokes that were accepted and used by Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, and Rip Taylor. He ended up creating a famous ad for a credit card company that led him to work on a campaign for Philip Morris's Virginia Slim's cigarette brands. Now, National Lampoon magazine was actually headquartered in the same building, so of course they knew of Hughes, and he gave them the story, and they soon discovered he could turn around a uh, copy uh, that was consistently funny and had a natural talent for doing it in a record uh, amount of time, and that their other writers didn't possess the ability to do that. His first screenplay was National Lampoon's Class Reunion, which actually tanked, and then uh, Vacation 58 was uh, soon turned into National Lampoon's Vacation. I did not know any of that about him. I love learning this about him. It's great. All right, so I love Molly Ringwald. How did Molly Ringwald, star of 16 Candles, become Hughes Muse and manage to carry more influence on him and have more clout than any other actor? Now, Hughes first became aware of Ringwald after viewing a 1982 movie called Tempest, which was based on the Shakespearean play. He got a hold of her headshot and became obsessed with how she looked, and he actually pinned it to the wall above his desk and wrote 16 Candles without ever having met her. Now, Hughes was an expert on pop culture and music and a real intellectual, as was Ringwald, and they really connected to the point that the other knew what they were thinking. And as Susanna Gore pointed out, as well as other journalists for that matter, too, was that he never saw Ringwald like a regular teenager. So she was elevated to a level where all of Hughes' casting choices and the actors who got additions and table reads uh, with films that Molly Ringwald were in uh, got pre Proved by her, and people won or lost parts based on what she thought of them. Wow. She did have a lot of pull. Dang. Uh-huh. All right. So, yeah, I mean, well, I think she did a fine job because all the casting is fantastic, so I'm going to have to give her kudos for that. I am. <laughs> yes. All right. Definitely. So why did Hughes make the – by the way, this is all brand new to me, you guys. I'm super excited to learn this stuff. Thank you so much for your research, Jeff. So why did Hughes make the cast from The Breakfast Club pretend they were actual high school students and have them enroll in undercover classes? And then once he did that, what happened when they did that? Well, for starters, Ellie Sheedy, uh, and Amelia Estevez were uh, 23 years old, and Judd Nelson was 25 at the time of the filming with Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall 
really being the only teenagers in the cast. Now, Hughes wanted mm-hmm. them to get in touch with real teenagers at his former high school, Glenbrook North High School in Chicago, and take note of the issues that were affecting them. According to Internet Movie Database, uh, Nelson was really the only one who pulled this off successfully, uh, stating to the teenagers that he was a legitimate student. And after buying beer for them with his so-called fake ID, which was his real driver's license, he was 20, when he was 24 at the time, he told them to uh, drop them off at his hotel where the actors were staying. Years later, reflecting on his antics, Nelson said, they would just ask me why I was staying there, and I told them that my dad was in jail. I'm staying at the Weston O'Hare while he's incarcerated. So he was able to pull it off uh, more so than, than the others, but they, they weren't uh, mega-famous either uh, before going into uh, Breakfast Club and what happened oh, uh, you know, after. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Now we're going to talk about my favorite, by the way. My very favorite is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So why was the cast of Ferris Bueller's Day Off horrified with the final edit of the film? Well, for one thing, Hughes would shoot way more film than he needed, and he kept going and going and going on scenes. And uh, the initial edit was three hours long, and it was whittled down to the final edit, of which the uh, actors uh, and studio executives saw at the same time. And nobody laughed. And they thought that uh, Ferris was coming off as a complete jerk, and they hated the fact that uh, he was constantly breaking the fourth wall in, in monologues. And the actors, as well as the film studio execs, uh, thought that the film would not work, and the actors thought that it would be career-ending uh, performances for all of them. So what happened was that uh, Hughes realized that, he, that something was wrong, and he said, well, give me two weeks, and uh, the editor and I will tinker with it, which they did, and that uh, resulted in the final movie of which you have seen, of all, we've, all of us have seen. Uh-huh. So, so they weren't happy with the final edit because of all the cuts? Yeah, they weren't happy with the the, the final edit edit uh, originally because they uh, Charlie Sheen actually had a longer part than he was uh, supposed to in a complete uh, backstory. Um, siblings that uh, that uh, Ferris Bueller had were cut out of the film too, as well as uh, Louis Anderson's uh, what was supposed to be his professional uh, film debut. Um, he was just shot that movie. And more, he loved uh, the actual shooting actors and, and working with them. But when it came time to editing the, the films, uh, you'd have to basically drag him into the editing room. And he only <laughs> gave you like a list of what he really wanted. And the editors had to craft the narrative of those films and, and whittle it down from, the, uh, from all of the film uh, footage that he, he shot. That's a big job for them. Good on them. Phew, I do love that movie. So I heard that it was constantly delayed with the budget soaring and scheduling conflicts out of control. Why would a film with a pretty simple premise become so difficult to complete? Well, Hughes was someone who was never happy with the final script. He always had his actors improvising scenes based on the parameters he gave in his initial drafts. Now, as I said, his initial cut had to be whittled down by the film's editor, who received very little guidance from him to three hours to the final film uh, uh, version that we eventually saw. Hughes would shoot thousands of feet of film, as I mentioned, and write characters for the story mm-hmm. that never appeared in the final film, including two more siblings for Ferris. And he was, uh, Hughes was forever writing new material for the film while actually making it, and that uh, was the reason behind, behind the schedule um, 
having problems. Now, this made the executives behind the film pretty nervous. He was also kept trying to top himself with elaborate scenes, including the one in the parade where Ferris is rocking out to the Beatles' twist and shout, where they had a float design that he that they actually placed in a real parade and kept moving the float back to the, to the back oh, of it to get the scene, and they hired extras on top to fill in the crowd. Also, a considerable problem were the replica Ferraris he had designed uh, on the fiberglass on uh, Mustang bodies with cheap engines uh, that kept breaking down in every single scene that they were in. So the cast and crew cheered when the car in question was hurled through a window into a ravine <laughs> during one of the final shots in the film. That's so great. I wonder, I would, like, I like trivia. I wonder how many cars they use, and I wonder if there's any director's cuts that we can watch or deleted scenes or anything like that. Yeah, I would hope that so with that great. one. They they, they yeah. uh, hooked it up to cables, uh, told the tow truck driver to floor it, and they just went nuts when it went through that window because <laughs> of all the trouble it caused them. Everybody cheering, yeah! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> all right, well... So let's talk about planes, trains, and automobiles. What two classic scenes in planes, trains, and automobiles persuaded the fantastic and wonderful Steve Martin to be in that movie? Steve Martin wasn't even sold on appearing in the picture until the marathon car rental scene was written by Hughes. In it, he is dropped off by a bus from the airport by the company that he's rented the car from, and the bus takes off, leaving him stranded with keys to a car that isn't even there. He walks across the highway, an airport runway, and finally makes it back to the rental car desk, where an ultra-perky uh, employee behind the desk is told by him to wipe the smile off her rosy cheeks as he attacks her with a barrage of F-words, rattling off every single make-a-car he can think of, before telling her to just give him something with four wheels and a seat, and then he learns that he is screwed because he actually threw away his rental agreement. Now, the other scene involves John Candy, where his uh, jacket gets stuck on, on one of the seats, and he's got a cigarette that lands, lands up on the back seat, and the car catches on fire, and they soon realize that Martin has left the credit cards and all kinds of ID in the uh, glove box. So that was the, the second scene that, uh, uh-huh. that Martin really liked doing. Those are fantastic scenes, like, Seriously, he's a brilliant writer. He is a brilliant director. Those scenes are so funny. So funny. <laughs> I love them. All right, so do you agree with John Diamond's article in The Atlantic that Home Alone marked a shift from the originality of Hughes' earlier work? Absolutely. There's no uh, denying it that uh, Diamond is right on the money here. Uh, Home Alone, which uh, statistics indicate was made for uh, over 500 million, that was made for 18 million rather, and had a worldwide gross of over 500 million, and was uh, Hughes' biggest uh, film. Uh, that definitely influenced that. Uh, so immediately following it, he uh, decided to direct a 1991 film, which became his last, by the way, called Curly Sue uh-huh. with Jim Belushi and Alison Porter, about a man who teams up with his daughter to scam people. And it absolutely bombed. So from then on, Hughes kept trying to write family-oriented pictures, including flops such as Dennis the Menace, Baby's Day Out, Flubber, and the 1996 live-action 100 Dalmatians, as well as... Uh, 
uh, Baby Stay Out and Gilbert Taylor. But he wasn't proud of these films, and he was writing them under pseudonym uh, Edmund Dantes, and it also included the Beethoven films as well. Um, he, he was going to uh, direct uh, again in uh, 2002 with the uh, movie that became Maiden in Manhattan. Uh, but, and he never returned to the type of films that made him famous in the 1980s. Uh, they meddled, the studios meddled too much with the script for Maiden Manhattan, and he uh, bailed on the project. Uh, he didn't want to direct it, and he did not want a writing credit at all. Mm-hmm. I have seen those movies, though, and I actually didn't know that that was his pseudonym. It's interesting. Because mm-hmm. I have seen them. I mean, obviously, they're not as great as movies from the 80s, but they're all right. I'm just saying. So what do you think led him to stop directing and making films after Curly Sue? So, you know, he did nothing else in his name after that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he was a uh, a, uh, a family man um, and, uh, you know, didn't like being between L.A. and Chicago where where he lived. And uh, I don't think he ever saw himself as a director and preferred uh, writing because he was constantly doing it and had, according to my research, uh, over 600 notebooks with uh, 300 of them containing completed stories or ideas for film. So when he died, according to his children and numerous reports by journalists backing that up, uh, it was easy for him to write and he enjoyed working with actors and watching them improvise and craft performances but once he was done that with that he moved on to the next project often having editors craft his films from over three hours of initial cuts um mm-hmm. shape the narrative as i said earlier he also moved around a lot until his family uh, settled into uh, illinois as a teen and when he had his children of his own he didn't like living in la as i stated absolutely hated hollywood uh, politics nor was part of that scene he would also he also had a partner in howard deutsch who directed pretty in pink some kind of wonderful and the great outdoors because he was on the same wavelength as hughes while hughes would uh, would write the scripts also he had abhorrent behavior on set and with with actors uh, especially those who were established actors and not members of the brat pack who he considered family he was always running into into issues with them and when some kind of wonderful was being filmed he had uh, director Martha Coolidge uh, fired as well as two actors that the cast absolutely loved and they um, when they did a table read with with Hughes they did it in a somber tone and he got really really angry and hurled mm. a, a chair towards the direction of the cast, almost hitting Eric Stoltz in the head. So they uh, more or less uh, were separated from having an actual uh, physical confrontation. Yeah, he, he was always having trouble with, uh, with uh, any of the adult uh, stars that he was, was directing for sure. And also, he was writing a lot of his material towards the end that wasn't uh, filmed for John Candy, who, whom he absolutely adored and uh, uh-huh. had a tremendous connection with, and he was totally gutted by, by his death. So I think all these factors and the fact that uh, he was, uh, must have had a mental disturbance at, at the time because he was shutting out all his friends, uh, didn't have an agent anymore, wouldn't connect with people that he knew, absolutely froze them out of his life. Um, oh. That and being a total recluse, and uh, more or less uh, J. J. D. Salinger of his uh, his generation, it all um, it all is the same like ball of wax that uh, that accumulated sure. and probably motivated uh, what happened there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine so. A lot of people think that he did write some kind of wonderful, 
and directed it. That's one of I hear that a lot. So I could see why they were. It's interesting. So, all right. Well, I learned a lot about him today. We covered a lot of territory, and um, we're just about done. So, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I think it's um, a good idea for fans of John Hughes to read the 1985 article written by David Blum from the New York uh, Magazine where he coined the term the Brat Pack because he actually violated the trust that uh, Emilio Estevez and his publicist gave him to do a small piece, a small profile on him for um, the movie St. Elmo's Fire. So mm-hmm. Estevez uh, had his guard down, and he invited this reporter to a dinner with him and Judd Nelson and Rob Lowe, and he ended up writing something that wasn't true about their behavior and being brats. And uh, he uh, ranked everyone that Hughes worked with in order of uh, what um, the amount of talent he thought they had or didn't. So oh. he coined the term the Brat Pack, and everybody was guilty by association. And uh, for better or worse, it influenced or or had uh, adverse uh, results on their career. That's harsh. I do think they all were pretty successful, though, considering. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Most of them, anyways. They did have some issues. And being young and in Hollywood, of course, that would make sense, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. All right, well, go ahead. Yes, please. <laughs> I would also point out with Ali Sheedy, when she, she did her uh, audition for, for Breakfast Club, uh, she was late for it because of a car accident on the the highway and the day before she was working on a set piece that actually the board uh hit her between the eyes causing uh, black eyes so that's uh, how she got the, the part in breakfast club because hughes uh, thought she looked gothic with and the character <laughs> she plays in the movie has uh, dark eyes so he saw what she looked like and that ended up getting her the part that's so great she was great i mean it is it's my second favorite of his movies so yeah it was good all right, well, if you don't have anything else to add, I mean, if you have any other, you know, tidbits or trivia or anything to add, feel free. Well, I would add that uh, the uh, Jeffrey Jones character in uh, Ferris Bueller is actually based on a real high school uh, principal that uh, John, John Hughes uh, knew. And uh, what happened is that this guy was so intimidating towards staff and students because he carried a loaded gun with him at all times when he was rolling the the uh the hallways so that uh, influenced his uh his writing for for the uh, character the principal uh no the dean of students in um Ferris Bueller who was played by by Jeffrey Jones Mhm Yeah he he had a weird relationship with his principals I guess I mean even in you know Breakfast Club that principal was bad so that's interesting You can learn a lot like, I think we should do a marathon. So I've decided I'm going to start a marathon again with all of them, all of his movies. <laughs> Just watch them all again. Uh, the other thing so, I'll mention is that uh, Rick Moranis, who was originally supposed to play the uh, role of Carl, Carl the janitor in Breakfast Club, uh, had actually filmed scenes where he portrayed the character, but he was ultimately fired by Hughes and the film executives because he consistently uh, uh, did the the scenes in a, a stereotypical uh, Russian accent and uh, just would not break <laughs> from that. So they they uh, ended up uh, getting rid of him. And uh, Judd Nelson was almost fired because of his uh, performances. John Bender, he was a method actor, and... Uh, it was extremely difficult towards the cast and was uh, bullying uh, Molly, Molly Ring, Ringwald in character before, uh, before the film started and during, during it. 
so um yeah he almost got fired and that was his uh biggest uh performance that everybody knows him by uh-huh it sure is so he took his method acting seriously huh i guess that's what that yeah means. he really did he really did he got involved that's so funny uh and he was older too i didn't know that he was one that taught me a lot thanks jeff i really appreciate you're it. welcome um, and also, too, I would like to, I mean, I didn't realize how young he was when he passed away, August 6, 2009. He was only 59 years old. So I think you're right about, like, there's some stuff happening towards the end that seemed to accelerate that because that's so young. That makes me sad. Yeah. Yes, he uh, had a heart attack while he was uh, walking down the street in uh, Chicago uh, back in 2009 and unfortunately uh, uh, passed away. Mm. Well, we're going to just remember the good things. I'm going to watch a, I'm going to watch a marathon of his movies. I think there's some that I haven't – no, I think I've seen them all. I'm looking at the list. I know for sure, like, um, Flubber, Made in Manhattan. I've seen all of those, too. So I'm pretty sure I saw them all. But I will watch it again. And I hope you guys enjoyed the show, and I hope you'll watch all of his movies. And, Jeff, please come back. I really like being on the air with you. You're so – intelligent and smart and well-spoken about the information that you, you know, um, look up for us and the research that you do. I really appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. I absolutely love doing it and um, love connecting uh, with you. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to be on the it's on the show, so and uh, hopefully we can do this again. I hope so, too. Thank you again for being with us. And thanks also to Blog Talk Radio for featuring this show Plus, a big shout-out to Nancy Lombardo and Angela Drake for supporting our show on their own radio shows. Nancy hosts What's the Buzz here on Block Talk Radio, and Angela hosts a variety of shows on 506 Fallen Angel Radio. I think that's all for now, so if you guys tune in next time, um, as whenever we figure out what we're going to do, and that's everything. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Jeff. Bye-bye. Welcome. Bye.
that I'll prefer. 